Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to this episode of the Inspired Evolution. This week we have the blessing of having on Kerry Sutton, who wrote Raising a Mentally Fit Generation. Kerry has written this book out of, uh, there's been a lot of challenges for this forthcoming generation. She's been an expert in this space for over 30 years, and she's been inspired to write this book. Now, this book basically gives us the 10 keys for raising well-being within our kids. It's an incredible read. Um, I have to say, it's not just for kids. This book actually lays out 10 keys for well-being within adults as well. And I think that's kind of um, what inspires uh, us to be good parents as well. And she talks about the modeling behavior and how that how that bleeds in. So this is a really deep conversation. It's a little bit longer than most of our Inspired Evolution podcast, but there's just so many places to go in this podcast. The Inspired Evolution, the future generation is who will inhabit the earth. And this is about how to be the best parents that we can be to support them. I'm obviously inspired to share this conversation with you. As always, if these conversations and such conversations that you're enjoying at the Inspired Evolution are inspiring you, we invite you to share them around. As always, hit subscribe if this is your first time here, ring the bell notification. And if there's some key takeaways for you that really speak to you, please, 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 please comment. I love hearing from you guys and just having that banter back and forth. It's such a yummy place to connect here on YouTube. So uh, yeah, let's uh, stay engaged, stay involved and tune into this amazing episode about raising well-being in kids. Big love. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution, a show dedicated to helping you actually live the life that you love. I'm your host, Amrit Sandhu, international speaker, global coach, and loving podcaster. As a gift for tuning into this podcast, I have something really special just for you. 
my premium short course, which can teach you how to meditate in just seven days. You can download it now at www.inspiredevolution.com forward slash learn. That's www.inspiredevolution.com forward slash learn. Learn how to meditate in just seven days. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this powerfully insightful conversation. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the latest episodes launching every Monday designed to help you live the life you love and keep you inspired to evolve. I think it's all angels just walk by. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution, and it is a treat. It is a yummy, fun-filled, childish, it's really not that childish, I learned so much. Anyway, treat to be here (laughs) with Carrie Sutton. Carrie, how are you? I am well, Emirate. How are you? I'm really, really good. I'm really, really good. I am on the back of having read your book, Raising a Mentally Fit Generation, Science-Based Tools and Strategies to Build Resilience and Wellbeing in Our Kids. And I'm a little bit peeved. I'm a little bit peeved. I'm just like, dude, this book is not just for kids. I could have learned some of this when I was early on. So that's uh, that's where I'm at. For those that are tuning in to Carrie for the first time, let me just quickly do her the honors. She's a researcher, educator, author, and speaker. She has helped over 25,000 parents, educators, and people who care for kids develop their skills and confidence to promote mental fitness habits in homes, schools, and early childhood facilities and workplaces. She's been a teacher, deputy principal, guidance counselor, consultant for families for over 30 years. And one of the things she's most proud of is her 25-year involvement with Camp Quality, a support program for children from the youngest possible all the way through to 13 that are living with cancer. Carrie, it is absolutely our blessing to have you here today. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you, Amrit, because I guess uh, it's my privilege to be on. I love your work. I love the things that you do. I've been, since we met, I think it was about eight weeks ago now, uh, I've just been following you and gaining more of an insight into what you do. And I'm just really humbled to be on the podcast today. I'm just going to throw this uh, through this podcast. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that. (laughs) I'm just going to throw this podcast out the window for a second. Hey, like your bookcase looks the same as my bookcase. My shirt is also blue. Yours is blue as well. Like what is going on? We're very in sync today, aren't we? At least, well, and then I'm not wearing a beanie though. That's one good thing. It's a bit hot in Brisbane. So yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for those tuning in, we're not in the same space, even though lockdown in Melbourne actually has opened, um, even though it looks like we're in the same space, we're actually not. Carrie, I wanted to start by actually bringing it back into the podcast. Um, why mental fitness? Emirate, good question. Uh, things that have been going on for kids, uh, as you said, I've been teaching and working with families for the past 30 years. Mm. What I've noticed most probably in the past, 10 to 15 years is that there's a new morbidity that's impacting our children. Depression, anxiety, self-harm, and unfortunately to a certain degree, even suicide. Mm. And this is taking its toll beyond all measure. I'm, I've seen families' hearts break when these things happen. It's like their children disappear before their eyes and unfortunately some have even taken their own lives. And 
what I've realised is that we're not giving children the skills to develop their mental muscles, to develop positive mental health and well-being. At school, we give them the tools to be physically healthy, to be academically healthy, mm. but nobody has given us the tools to take care of our minds. Mm. And that's what mental fitness is all about. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, for those that are tuning in, this is going to be quite a heavy, dense kind of conversation, but you're in luck because Gary <laughs> is always lighthearted and jovial. So <laughs> I love the way you show up for this topic around um, around mental fitness. I think there couldn't be a better messenger, if I could put it that way. Um, and I think it's it's profound for me that as we're evolving as a society, it seems to be that there seems to be greater, even though maybe Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we seem to have more and more needs met as a collective. It seems like the psychological intricacies and burdens, potentially some of the social structures that we're placed into are actually even more challenging than they were previously. There is. And that's, for me, this is, it's becoming more obvious that children need to have these skills from a younger age. There's more and more pressure, whether it be through our electronic devices, whether it be through an always on media cycle. When you and I were younger, this was not, if there was bullying or if those sorts of things, we could go home and mm. we could shut the door and the world was kept at bay. Now the world comes into our homes in a whole wide variety of ways, which means we actually have to be better at taking care of our own well-being than we were when they when we were growing up. We have to be more, we have these kids need to be more conscious about what's going in them, what they're feeding their minds, and what they're saying to themselves about themselves. Mm. Thank you so much for saying that. And you know, I think. There are 10 steps in the book, which are incredible, uh, teaching us the, the basics of the brain, cultivating optimism, managing our emotion, recognizing our strengths, uh, how to make friends, encouraging kindness and empathy, fostering gratitude, learning to fail. Can't wait to dive into that one. Working on self-mastery and then ultimately practicing mindfulness. But how much of this resilience piece is about boundaries? That's interesting because it's one our kids need us to give them boundaries. So whether we're educators, whether we're parents, children need boundaries. Children don't need their parents or educators to be their friend. That's not how things work. They actually thrive better when there are boundaries in place. Mm -hmm. And that also comes when you're asking about resilience and what does it mean about boundary, with boundaries. Mm -hmm. We actually have to place boundaries on ourselves as parents and as educators that we don't go in and rescue our kids all the time. We have to put that boundary there. When you were talking about learn how to fail or, or to cope with failure and disappointment, if you, if you have kids and you're listening to this, and even as an educator, we can feel things incredibly. We are empathic people because of the mirror neurons in our neurology. Mm. When we see the things happening to our little people and our children are parts of our hearts that are wandering around outside our bodies, mm. we would do anything to protect them. But in that rush to protect them and to stop them feeling difficult emotions, what we're actually doing is making them less and less resilient. Mm. 
Kids need to be able to sit with disappointment, to have hurt feelings, to actually learn that failing is okay. If we rescue them, whether it be from falling out of a tree or falling out with friends, if we continually scoop them up and take them away and, and give them excuses or, or whatever it is, we actually have to put boundaries around our own behaviour and say, you know what, this is going to be really hard to watch my child go through that. But I know if I sit there with them, hold them in that supportive space and be with them, it's actually teaching them a lesson. Mm. Yes, what I'm hearing is, um, and this is, this is a great conversation for me to be a part of because I'm considering or not considering like actively trying to think about having a family. And what I'm hearing is it's not so much about, um, which is the, the, I can appreciate that there is that inclination, like your heart is literally walking around outside your body. I love the way you put that. Um, and I could only imagine, um, but it's not so much about protecting them from everything as much as giving them the tools to be able to navigate the challenges that will come their way. Um, and in that, the, the conversation around which boundaries to set um, and then which boundaries to sort of, you know, let them explore on their own so that they can actually understand. Absolutely, because there are some boundaries we set. As, as good parents, as good teachers, there are boundaries we set that children need to learn. And especially in the early childhood years, they need us to set those boundaries. Mm. But to be honest, we're not always going to be there to set those boundaries. Mm. So we better hope that we've instilled the values and the understanding in our children because when they hit 16 and 17, we're not going to be the ones who are in those cars when somebody says, oh, hey, do you want to come home? Like, do you want, I'll drive you home. And they're a bit, they might've had too much to drink. We want our kids to go, actually, you know what? Might get a cab, might get an Uber or those sorts of things. So we can't be there all the time to protect them. But what we can do is exactly what you just said, which is giving them the tools and skills. Mental fitness, mental fitness is actually a precursor of resilience mm. in that to be resilient, you need to be mentally fit. Mm. You actually have to have done the work. And when I say work, people say, are you asking children? No, it's the intentional habits. It's the daily practices, whether it be mindfulness, a gratitude journal, or even three good things before they go to bed. Mm. Some really easy things that build our resilience, that build our capacity to bounce back. But if we're not doing these things and if our kids don't do them, they can't develop resilience either. Mm. And so what are some of the optimum, like there's no time like the present, I guess, is probably the easiest answer. But is there like in your mind, having worked with so many um, children, what is the optimum to start sort of having some of these conversations? Because I looked at going through your book, like some of these concepts are the concepts that I wish um, even just from a life coach perspective of working with so many people, um, I'm aware that a lot of, if, if we had these 10 steps prescribed to us in an early age, I might even be out of a job as a life coach, if I'm honest with you. Um, because a lot of this stuff is, is what kind of, uh, matures and manifests into certain ailments as we get older, not being able to be aware of what we love to do, not having a mindfulness practice, um, not, being grateful for the things that we have and, you know, the, what sort of come, the mindset that comes with that, even just the growing growth mindset stuff, learning to fail. So what is that best, like in your opinion, the optimum age to be learning some of these things or instilling some of these things? It's, and I know this is going to sound a bit silly, but have you, have you ever had a dog? 
Yeah. <laughs> so you will know that if you've ever had to go to dog training and it's generally when they're puppies and it's actually not training the dog. Yeah, it's I hate training it. you. It's training you. <laughs> and, and I, that, that's what this book is designed to do. It's actually, so when you ask what's the optimum age, I would hope, and one of my, I guess, and it's interesting, before we um, did the podcast, you were talking about goals and things. And one of the things I would really love is that one day, hopefully I can afford to put one of those books in each of the newborn bags at the hospital because it's actually how we live our lives, how we as adults model these behaviours and what we can do for our children. So as young as possible, and I would start saying, you know, from a very early age, from the early childhood years. Now, it's not, it's just how are we grateful as parents? It's not saying you've got to lecture them or make them do all these things. It's just the traditions Mm. the rituals what's woven through their lives because we've actually lived this stuff in their presence Mm. if people want to know how to have an empathic child i often say to them look these are certain things but also show empathy yourself hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you want to have a kind child, show kindness have manners, be polite, show them respect. It's not because those are the sorts of things that we are the most, the foremost teachers of children are the parents. And they will, however, I've got to say, when I was an early childhood teacher, one of the mums came to school one day and she said, oh, my child worships you. If you said the sky was purple, no matter what I said, they would go with you because they just (laughs) love you. Um, And it is. That's why when there are abuses of power, whether it be through teachers or things like that, it breaks my heart because children trust, particularly Mm. in the early childhood years. And I think when you're asking, Amrit, about is there an optimal time from zero to eight or nine, that's when they are they're sponges they take everything in and there is no critical filter Mm. so uh, as they get older there's a critical filter and they'll go "Mm, don't know doesn't sound right (laughs) but when they're little they won't question and that's why I say to both parents and educators please be careful with the language you use with your children. Please watch the throwaway lines because frequently that will become part of the itty-bitty shitty committee that sits on their shoulder 
and talks to them as they grow up. And every adult, when I do parent presentations, when I do public workshops, I ask them, does everybody have this itty bitty shitty or itty bitty crappy committee? Yep, we all have it. (laughs) And it often sounds like parents that they're like, you might hear your parent there. You might hear Mm. a teacher that said, yeah, you're never going to be good at maths. You know what, why do I do? And children take that on especially when they're in the early childhood years and they take it as gospel, they take it as truth. And Mm. that then becomes hardwired into their brain because that thought goes over and over and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. That's why when you ask what's the ideal age as soon as possible, but really in the early childhood years as well. However, you can teach kids these skills. It's just going to take a little more work if they're older. Yeah, and I, I love also what you shared about, thank you so much for sharing that. I also love what you shared is uh, this book is also uh, encouraging parents to learn how to model behavior because it's actually, it's yeah, it's written. It's, it's great. I want to stop dancing around it a little bit and I'll, let's dive into some of this. I've actually got the book open. I've never really done this on a podcast before is actually open up a book and go through it. But this is the only way I really know how to do this podcast with you, to do it on her. So the first part, Teaching the Brain Basics, Chapter 1 is Part 1 of all of this. Can you, I love this, I love this, can you please describe us the metaphor of the upstairs and the downstairs floors of the brain? And so this, I've got, this is not my, so it's Siegel's work if you're looking at the whole brainchild or different things, but it's how, because children love, um, and I draw this, so we draw ahead and then we talk about the upstairs and downstairs part. And what we also say is that sometimes, so the upstairs part, this is where, and if you, and I, I'm trying, now I'm doing it, um, it's the prefrontal cortex and where all of the thinking, ha- like the rational the uh, behaviour modification or so, where it goes and goes, you know what, I'm in charge, I've got this, I know how to behave in these situations, I know what to do, I know how to follow the rules. So the that's our upstairs part. part. Yeah. Yes, the wise. And then our downstairs part is like, Yep, I've got everything under control. I feel good. This is where um, the body and where the downstairs part takes a lot more notice of what's going on in our body. So Mm -hmm. if our heart starts racing for some reason or if um, we start becoming anxious about something or we pick up, and it's interesting because we take in thousands of pieces of information And the reticular activating system sorts through those pieces of information. But if the reticular activating system sorts and finds something, and if it's even a little bit off, that will set the downstairs part of the brain going, oops, yep, okay, got to look around. Something's going wrong. Something's, I'm much more alert. Something's dangerous. And what happens is the signals between, so it's like the signals between the upstairs part going, it's going to be okay. They'll go downstairs and tell the brain it's going to be. And then the big, the, uh, they come up the stairs and go, yeah, no, it's not going to be okay. There's something out there that's going to be dangerous to us, whether it's somebody who's said, whether dad's gotten angry and his voice is, even if it's a changed pitch, kids mm. who live in trauma know that if, certain things happen, their downstairs part of their brain immediately switches on. They become much more hypervigilant and they go, well, okay, I need to watch out. And that's when the top part of the brain or the upstairs will actually, the stairway gets clogged. There's too many messages trying to go through. Downstairs takes over and it goes, you know what, upstairs, we've got this. We're going to take control right now until it's safe. We'll keep you safe and we're in charge. 
and the downstairs brain kicks in. What are some of the challenges? Why is it so important to know the difference between the upstairs and the downstairs brain? Why can't the downstairs brain just stay charge? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to snort, but yes, the downstairs brain. The downstairs brain, if the downstairs brain took over, and this is part of the thing where, where I talk to families about children who may have experienced trauma or who may, we call often call it living above the red line. Yeah. And when we talk about that, when we live, when anybody lives above the red line, but if children are hypervigilant, if they're constantly worried or anxious or biting fingernails or things like that, what's going on is there's actually this toxic bath of chemicals going mm -hmm. through their body the nervous system yeah cortisol and adrenaline are actually toxic for the if they're if they're being constantly if our organs and brain is being constantly bathed in these chemicals it's actually really bad for the for the development of the child and it can actually stunt neurological development so the downstairs part of the brain what we need to do is teach the upstairs and talk about with the upstairs part of the brain is how do we talk about emotions? How do we label our feelings? Because you've got to name it to tame it, as Dan Siegel says. If, if you can't describe, and often, particularly young children, they'll know, oh, I, I might have butterflies in my tummy or my hands might be all sweaty. And you can talk to them about that. You might be a bit anxious or you might be a bit scared or you might be a bit worried or are you a bit frightened about this or are you just unsure? Because there's a whole wide variety of emotions but generally unfortunately in western society particularly we go to rage fear disgust joy and sadness and they're the five that we we know and understand but there's actually nuanced emotions so it may not be disgust but it could be something like unease and they may feel unease about something or uneasy and that's where we need to know if you feel uneasy, what, what's going on in your body? What tells you that? And I'm not, I know it sounds really complex. It's actually not um, because you sit with your child and you start at their level. So you start at a really developmentally appropriate level. And that's why I talk about upstairs and downstairs of the mm. brain because children get it. They generally, they've experienced going upstairs or downstairs um, in a house possibly or at somebody else's house. So it's really an easy concept about what's going on and how sometimes when that stairway gets clogged because there's so many messages going backwards and forwards, what it might feel like and what needs to happen. Yeah, I don't think uh, it sounds too confusing at all, to be honest. I think like even for me, that's a metaphor that I've really just taken away, uh, just implemented in my own practice now it's like because i get it it's like when i'm clearly thinking and above the line I, I love that um being above or below the line so when you're above the line you're open you're clear you're inspired you're creative um and then there's moments where you're like kind of like on edge it's like well what's this person you're already kind of energetically guarding before this person's like oh i'm downstairs in my head and that metaphor is just so so powerful um that yeah i think even just that a parent could understand that so clearly um, yeah, that's, that's why, that. yeah, that's why I did it because I need them to understand, but also children mm. to understand because when they've got that visual and then they can actually close their eyes and think, okay, I know I'm in my downstairs brain. What do I need to do? Mm. 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 I love that. So talking about downstairs, upstairs brain, moving into the next part of the book, which, uh, was <laughs> obviously I've got a massive bias for this one cultivating optimism. Now I totally want to do this, <laughs> but, 
But what are some of the benefits of cultivating optimism? Why? Well, and a lot of people say, oh, you're just an unrealistic optimist. Yeah. Stop the being fluffy, actually- Carrie. That's right. <laughs> no, it's just it. Um, the book is based on tenets of positive psychology and positive psychology isn't, a, isn't about happyology. It's not about being happy all the time. And optimism is not about being happy all the time either. Hmm. Being happy all the time is actually a disorder. It's called mania. We don't want people to have that um, or be manic. So, and, and, and that's not me making fun. That's actually saying that is a disorder and it's not something we I would advocate for so I'm not saying you have to be optimistic all the time we optimism and pessimism are explanatory styles and one of the things around optimism and why we would like to move towards a more explanatory uh, optimistic explanatory style is because when you have that there is more hope So if you have an optimistic explanatory style or if you can help your children develop one, what it's actually doing is saying, you know what, I can see that it's a bit crap at the moment, but I know things are going to get better. Mm. And with with a pessimistic explanatory style, what often happens is people generalise. So they go, it's all my life that's crap. Mm. It's my fault that it's crap. And there's nothing I can do about it. So it's personalization. They personalize it. They globalize. And, and what we've got to understand is actually saying, you know, it's not, and you can look at your children. And, and to give you an example, I know I talked about it in the book. Um, there were two kids that were trying out for a softball team that I was coaching. And one got out, they didn't, both girls didn't make it. Um, one actually went, oh, you know what? I'm never going to make the team. It's useless. I'm no good. I should never have tried out. And the other one came up. So they both said this to me. Well, that one said it a little more openly. Another one came up to me and said, Miss, I know I didn't make the team this time, but I can see why I didn't. I know if I go away and practice that I can get better and that I'll most probably make it next year. I said, absolutely. These were the only things that you were missing this year. And yes, there were some older girls who were better at that than you, but you know, and you've taken on where you can do that. And she said, I understand that now. And I, and I know that I can get in next year. I know that it was just these things that let me down. It wasn't all my skills. And that's the problem because people who are more pessimistic, one, there's, and there's, there, again, uh, to give your listeners the research, this is all research-based. I'm not just pulling this stuff out of my butt and making it up. Um, peer-reviewed journals, um, all of this uh, positive psychology, it's about science and it's about rigour. So when they talk about optimism and pessimism and an optimistic explanatory style, pessimistic explanatory style, what they've found is that pessimistic explanatory style, more closely linked with heart disease, um, early death, um, so or de- before they're more before optimists die. Yeah, so it's those are the sorts of things. It's a health outcome, but it's also a psychological outcome. Mm. And if you are more optimistic, there is more likelihood that you will look towards the future, that you will be more hopeful, that you will actually set more goals. Um, And those are the sorts of things in life that make life worthwhile, that make life worth living because you have the agency then. It's not outside you being forced upon you, but you have the agency. Thank you so much for sharing that with such eloquence. One of my favorite takeaways from that chapter in the book was the unfortunately fortunately game. 
Do you want to tell mm. us a little bit about the game? Because I, I didn't realise <laughs> I do that already. Um, oh, so tell me. No, I want to hear how you use it because some people go, what, how do you do that? And I think, well, this is just how I do it. But how do you well, use it already? To be honest, we already do this in our life. So basically when I'm in a, in a situation and somehow touch wood by some grace of God, um, my wife and I are like, I'll, I'll, like, I'll be complaining and she'll turn around and say, but isn't it amazing that, you know, and then she, and then sometimes she, she may be complaining and I'll be like, but silver lining. And to the point, Carrie, where I often, <laughs> often to the point where it's a bit ridiculous, I'll be in the middle of a conversation with people. I've used this in my coaching plenty of times. I've used this in the middle of like literally on Saturday night, I was hanging out with some friends. We were, there was about 12 of us um, just hanging out over, over a couple of bowls of soup and bread. And we were talking about a few things. We were really trying to crunch our head around this problem that we had, which was a fantastic problem. We were trying to figure out we're part of this choir and when the choir could gather and we couldn't find a venue and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, I digress. Long story. But That's the, right. the reality was I was like, we have so many options that we can't, we were debilitated by options. And I had to take a moment because we were feeling really stuck. And I just had to throw both hands up and go, I have the best problems, <laughs> right? So I just consistently end up finding I have to remind myself. We play the unfortunately, fortunately game with my wife, but also just even just that, I find it as a pattern interrupt just going, hang on a sec, I'm like really like focused on my problems right now, but how fortunate is it that I have the best kind of unfortunate? <laughs> Touch wood. Yeah, and that's what I talk to parents. So if it's with parents with kids or with parents with educators, what I say is it start they start that oh such a bummer this happened yes but aren't we lucky that or fortunate that this happens or mm -hmm. aren't we fortunate so it's like do you remember I think it was Billy Connolly that said there is actually no bad weather it's just the wrong clothes that you're wearing and <laughs> so it's, for me that's a way of looking at it and saying you know reframe things the rain is absolutely beautiful but it's just at the time, if you're just wearing a really light, that, that's a problem. You might, but you know what? It's fortunate that the rain is coming and that it's um, giving water to the ground. Or it, So it's looking and saying, you know, there is always a silver lining. Mm -hmm. And it's not about being unrealistic about silver linings because sometimes, sorry, shit happens. Mm -hmm. And especially when with my background with camp quality, I know that kids die from cancer. And there is not a good lining, like there, there's not good things at the time that come from that. I know I've worked then with parents who have gone through that and they said, you know, it's made us appreciate life more or it's made this happen. But that's in time. So with the, unfortunately or fortunately, we do that in a lot of different ways and you turn situations around. But there are some situations that at the time really living through them is actually crap mm. and it is hard. But if you didn't have, and I think that's the one thing I learned, and I started learning this because I started volunteering with Camp Quality from when I was about 16, 17 years of age. And the one thing we did was we always created hope. So if there were children who actually said, you know, Carrie, because there were campers, it, it was a camping program, we went away, and they often said, is heaven going to be better? And I would say, absolutely, heaven is going to be better that there is no, I have no doubt, like that there, that you are, will be loved, you'll be welcomed, that all the bloody angels will be singing basically. <laughs> so it was just, it's a way of saying, you know, you have hope, you have optimism 
and it's a way of looking at a brighter future. And I think that for me really gave me the emphasis to look or the yeah the emphasis to go and go. You know what's happening? Why do we as people? need to have that hopeful outlook and it's because that's part of our psychological well-being if you don't have hope if you don't have that it's almost giving a, a will to live is giving up means a lot to me especially being the guy behind the inspired evolution there's so much hope <laughs> impregnated into that name so thank you that means a lot to me but i do want to use that as a segue because there's a lot of emotions in the last little pack that you shared there managing emotions is chapter three and one of the things that I circled here is mentally fit people can label their emotions and manage their emotional reactions to external events and strong feelings without yelling, throwing things or damaging property. I, that was one of the things I really wish I read earlier in my life. That was one of the things where I know it sounds really simple as I read it, but managing my emotions without yelling, throwing things and damaging property. I can't say damaging property was a big thing, but just even just the raised tone of voice. Like, and now that was really important for me to read that because it was like, now I get it. Right. If I would have learned this earlier on that the minute my voice rises, I'm kind of off my emotional center and maybe just take a, take a couple of moments. Like now I just don't. Now it's like, okay, I'm going to sleep on it. Bye guys. I'm off. Like, I'm just going to go sleep on this and come back when I'm like not compromised emotionally. Um, and with mindfulness, obviously the bounce back factor is, is quicker. So I don't have to, you know, take mm -hmm. as long, but I wish I knew this earlier. So I circled this one. Um, this must be, this must be one that, you know, coaching people early on must be quite rewarding to watch how they, and there must be some real interfaces that you go, whoa, <laughs> you need to learn uh, this one. <laughs> absolutely. And exactly as you said, thank you for being honest and open about your, your perspective and your lived experience, because that's really important for people to hear is that you've just described when you say, even now, when your voice rises or when the tone, what's going on there, the, bottom downstairs brain gets switched on almost immediately mm. because that's a signal that there's either and why we talk about naming the emotions to tame them fear and anger are the opposite sides of a coin so fear and anger are very much related and frequently in our society particularly it's much more acceptable to be angry and enraged almost mm. than it is to be fearful Mm -hmm. So to give you an, a really easy example of this, if somebody cuts you off in traffic and or pulls in front of you, you're angry, but you're also most probably a little fearful that could have, I could have gotten hurt or whatever, but it switches like that to anger because mm -hmm. being afraid is not something we like being. Being afraid is uncomfortable. Being afraid makes us vulnerable. And so... When we look at that and when we talk about understanding feelings and you have the most emotionally healthy response, which is when I know I'm going there, I actually go and sleep on it or I remove myself from the situation. That's what we try and help children do. We try and say, because it talks about, we talk about emotional intelligence, which is self-awareness and self-management. And they're the foundation stones of that. And then relationship uh, awareness of others and relationship management but it's the self-awareness and self-management that actually are at the heart of emotional well-being and psychological well-being for all of us 
that was something another thing that sort of sorry tangent bothered me during this book as well because the languaging you use i use for my like adult life coaching program is like self-awareness followed by self-authorship followed by self-leadership uh are the first three pillars to my five-part process that i guide people through in life coaching And i was like there's just so many parallels i wish i had this book sooner one of the things coming back off the tangent that you were talking about just then and i remember reading through this and just going, do kids have the capacity to have this level of emotional um, intelligence and processing? And as soon as I started thinking about that, you actually started giving off some examples in the book where actually, yeah, kids are actually super self-aware and way more than actually adults even give them credit for. Yeah. And one of them is, and I don't have it on me, um, but I'll use this instead. So I do, I use, um, it's a, called a mind jar or, and you shake it like this. So you put, it's a jar. It can be a mason jar with water, like it's got a lid on it. Um, but what you have is your water in there, glitter and some glycerine. And what works is, so when they shake it like that, you say to them, when your brain, when you're getting upset or anxious or things like that, this is what your brain looks like. And when we need to calm our brains down, because when it looks like that, that's when the downstairs brain is in control. Mm. And so when the downstairs brain is in control and your brain looks like that, can you make good decisions? Mm. And they gently, and, and we talk about this even with three and four-year-olds. No, no, I get angry, I yell, I hit people. So they can tell us because, again, it's in situations where we've talked about them. When when the downstairs brain happened, this is what might happen. You were using your downstairs, or this was what was happening when your downstairs brain was on. You hit somebody. You wanted the shovel, but you hit them. You were angry. And these are the sorts of things. Now, it's not putting words in their mouth, but it's explaining what went on for them. Mm. It, and this is where it happened. So we were using with a, I think it, you guys have, preschool that would be in victoria that's three and four years of age is that correct preschool yeah i'm from adelaide we so, call it kindy but yeah here is okay kindy yes we call it kindy in queensland as well <laughs> so kindy or preschool so three and four year olds i was working with some educators doing this in their classroom and one day a teacher came in and we'd been doing it most probably for about two or three months so almost a quarter of the year the teacher came in looking very frazzled and this little girl went and she looked at, so all she had to do was look at the teacher walking in the door and she quickly ran and got the jar and went, miss, miss, your brain looks like this. You need to go sit down. That's so good. So she could actually look at the teacher, process that it was, things weren't going well, that the teacher was a bit scat, like the teacher Using wasn't coping. part of her brain. And that she most probably needed to sit in time out and chill. And the child didn't didn't say, you know, but she said, you just need, you need to sit down and hold the jar. Because what we taught them was if you hold the jar and watch the glitter fall, it's it's like a mindfulness practice for little mm, people. So they could watch good. it. Their brains would calm, they would settle. And she said, just watch the glitter, miss. Your brain will feel better. And <laughs> so that and if you do it in developmentally appropriate ways, they can start to learn. I'm not saying lay all these heavy emotions or things on them. It's just doing it in ways that those children can understand and then building on that foundation. Yeah. And I think that was the big thing that I took away from the chapter is just being able to have that conversation about the emotions, like being able to identify them and then being able to have that conversation. I am conscious of the time. I want to actually talk about one other thing from this chapter, though, that really um, it jumped out at me was this dialogue, which was basically all feelings are acceptable, but all behavior is not. And I think about all the outlandish behavior that gets 
criticized um, and how much of that must stem from just the feelings that were repressed. (laughs) And that's, that is a personal philosophy of mine as well, which is unconditional positive regard. So I will love the child and accept the child no matter what. Mm. I do not like the behaviour that you have done, but I will love and accept you. Mm. And I think that's really important because the problem we have as adults is we often jump to judge a child's behaviour, but that's all they've got to communicate with us sometimes. Mm. Behaviour is a form of communication. Mm -hmm. So if they haven't got the words to say, this is really pissing me off, Mm. Or and they don't know how to say that, they don't know how to word it, or they don't even know what's going on inside them. This is why it's so important to help them understand what's going on and, and manage that because the behaviors they have, they're all emotions. Emotions are data hmm. for you and I, children. It, it's purely and simply data. It's telling us about what's, what we are experiencing, what we're possibly thinking, because a lot of emotions come from thoughts we have. So we're thinking or worrying or the anxiety, and that triggers the emotions, which then it's a down, downward negative spiral. Yep. Absolutely. But what we look at is saying, you know, we're not judging the emotion or the feeling. We're not judging the data. It's telling us something about what's going on. You can be as angry as hell. And I say this to children, absolutely, you have every right to be as angry as hell, but you do not have right a right to go and punch that person in the face. Mm. So it's understanding and saying, it, and I'm sure you would have, and you would have worked with this, there's a space between stimulus and response. Mindfulness, yep. Absolutely. And what I try and teach kids is, you know what, this is the stimulus. So, yes, they may have done that. They may have knocked your sandcastle over, but you have a choice. Now, with little people, I don't say that to them. We actually have to scaffold it more and things like that. But as they're moving into their tweens and teen years, absolutely. Yeah, they did that. But you had a choice of how to respond. Mm. So it is about saying it's not about judging their feelings and I will never judge a child's feelings because I'm not in their shoes. And it's not about saying something is good or bad. There are positive and negative emotions. And that's just so uh, rage, fear, um, distrust, those would be more negative emotions. Um, and it's not saying that they're bad. It's just saying that they are uh, the, the opposite side of more positive emotions like contentment, um, gratitude, joy. It's, that's just two sides of it. Those are two sides of a coin of emotions. It's the behavior that stems from them. That's the problem. If, if it's causing other people issues. And it's such a blessing just to have it heard that way, because from there you can start even as the person receiving that piece of information is, ah, so it's okay to feel the way that I felt. I was justified. I was validated. But ah, the way I communicated subsequently, like you said, reaction response was flawed. How can I process this better? Becomes a whole conversation and you mature. Oh my God. I love it. Absolutely love it. Thank you. (laughs) So glad. The, the next one is basically what I spend most of my time coaching doing. <laughs> um, and it's helping people recognize their strengths. And this is chapter four in the book. And I was, I love the fact that this was in the book because I was like, is there ever too early an age to have people? Because there was a time in my life where I was like, you know what? 
obviously like I've been working on like all these things that, you know, uh, potentially are my weaknesses and there is definitely uh, an advocacy for doing that. Um, but then doubling down on your strengths, life is a lot more fun when you're doing that. But in order to double down on them, you've got to, you've got to recognize their strength. You recognize your strengths and the four key places where you point someone to identify their strengths is actually four of the six places where I point people to help them uncover their purpose in life. Um, yeah. yeah. And what they were, were what environment, like your favorites. So what environments or activity is your child continually drawn to, but you know, what are you continuously drawn to? When we talk mm. about purpose, I often pull out, like people go, oh, I don't even know. Like I, my house isn't cut filled with books and instruments like yours is Amrit. I'm not into music and personal development. I don't know what I'm into. I'm like, pull out your phone. What are you YouTubing all the time? What are you creating for yourself in your environment? Like what is in your echo chamber? The second point was quick learning. What skills or activity does your child pick up easily and quickly? And proficiency is the other thing. It's just like that I go for purpose. Like what things do you just naturally, for me, it was conversation. I've been podcasting Touchwood for three years, but it just turned into a thing all by itself. And it was like, whoa, like I enjoy this. I'm actually relatively okay at it. Um, point four was gratification, which was like enthusiasm. Where does flow show up? And I think that sort of led into point four as well as loss of time, which was legitimately flow states. At what point does yeah. your kid go into that flow state? And when is he just losing time into things? And those are all things that as adults were really powerful things to even just learn um, for, to find our purpose. And I just imagine what it would be like to have that conversation early on. Mm. And to tap into that and to have permission to tap into that, because I think and I don't know, I'm hoping these days it's not so much as parents get the report cards home and look and go, yeah, you should have worked harder on the one you got a D for, um, or that's, you're, you're going to be a computer scientist, you need to be doing this. Actually, you know, to find fulfilment, and I'm not saying it's just about, life is not just about fulfilment for children, I understand that, and yes, they do need to learn their times tables because they're very useful for things, and they do need to have these skills but ultimately, if we keep, and I look at it this way and I say to adults, you know, if you kept showing up at something and you kept getting berated for it, would you actually want to keep doing it? And it's not so, and if you knew in your heart that you weren't very good, no matter how hard you'd actually tried, and yes, even though you had a growth mindset and you wanted to keep trying, it wasn't clicking why do we keep making children do that? Because honestly, it's uh, especially and sometimes, and I'm not saying you do this, but sometimes parents live through their children and, and want them to achieve certain things or want them to go on and do that. You know, if your child's not cut out for that, that's okay because they will, we each have a song to sing. I am a firm believer of that. We each are brought into this life with something that's specially ours. Mm. And when we can tap into that and when we actually really get that that's what we're here for, and I'm not saying this is airy-fair, like that's, you know, it, what, what worries me and I look at it and say, if you're worried about and when people focus on weaknesses, is the weakness going to sink the ship? So if the child had a weakness and they couldn't spell or they didn't know how to communicate, absolutely, 
that would be something you need to work on because that will sink the ship. Hmm. If they can't do maths or can't tell the time or, and this is a neuro, a neurologically typical child. So if they were struggling with those sorts of things that were going to be difficulties for the rest of their life, absolutely give them that. But if it's a trigonometry or if it's those sorts of things, well, you know, exactly what are they going to be using that for? Because if that's not going to be of use in their future life, if it's not going to sink their ship, then why do we keep forcing them to do it? Mm-hmm. It's not a hole we need to plug. And on the flip side of that, something that you have in the book is, and this is such a, it, again, this is painfully obvious when you read it, but these are pure nuggets of pure wisdom. Strengths are a positive resource a child will have for their entire life. Yeah. And that is something, and that's why I talk about parents developing strengths or looking at what's going on. Because if you look at, if you look at most probably Mozart, Leonardo da Vinci, um, Einstein, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, you look at those people, and I'm not saying that they're all million, it's not about the money side of things. It's actually they focused on what they loved Mm -hmm. and they found that and they worked with their strengths. And when they didn't work with their strengths, that's actually when things went wrong. So if they've stepped outside their lane, that's when they when things go a bit pear-shaped. And you'll see that in Wanda if, if people are working there and that's what it, you can even see it in some of the athletes, in Australian athletes particularly, their strength and their skill is swimming. But nobody's actually thought to build something around them and to help them transition from the pool. Mm. because that's their strength. They stayed in their lane. That's what they knew. That's what they were good at. But because they've constantly developed that, they do have other strengths outside. And it's interesting because if you look at Michael Klim, he's actually got a business head like, and he's developed those, right? So that's a strength he's got. But that's some of the things. If you are consistently only focusing on one strength, that's a problem. But if you try and play outside your lane, that's another problem and things will go pear-shaped. So it's about really understanding and going, what's your child good? And I'm not saying that they can only do that. Life is not like that. We all have to go and flip hamburgers or do things that we don't like to do. Mm. But if they know what their strengths are, that's the positive resource that they can draw on because that also brings them psychological well-being. And I think that's the key, right? That what you just said just then at the very end is a conversation that we're still having at the, like it's at the heart of the inspired evolution to live the life you love. And the way you said it is like, when you use your strengths, you experience higher levels of happiness, lower levels of depression, elevated levels of confidence and self-esteem, fundamentally increased psychological well-being which makes it well worth the effort we need to live a quality life, basically. And yeah. I just, yeah, I, I loved it. I really loved it. And it was, it, yeah, just allowing us to give that permission to double down on our strengths. One of the next, Very much pla- so. the next place you went in the book was talking about making friends. And I, this was one thing that I really took on from uh, one of my um, favorite online kind of people that I like to listen to. Um, is Jordan Peterson. I'm not sure if you're aware of Jordan Peterson from Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. You are. So um, one of the things that he talked about was um, he, he is quite, as you, as you, as you probably know him, he's quite, um, I want to use the word severe, but I'm not sure if I can, but I I sort of want to, he's a bit severe in his diagnosis sometimes. And he goes, um, you've got between the ages of zero to four to get your kid well socialized. Um, If after that, they're not socialized, then 
you know, if they haven't figured out how to play, then everything's just harder from that point. Like everything, mm. you just, you're just on the back, back foot. And I remember reading this chapter on making friends and it was just like, Oh, like this is, this makes a lot of sense. Like, obviously I've heard Jordan Peterson say that in a couple of two to three minute snippets, but you actually unpacked why it was so important. Yeah. And if you look at the studies that are uh, talk about psychological well-being and physical well-being as well, relationships are at the cornerstone of our well-being uh, across. So there's a Harvard study. It's been done over 70 years. So there's actually been researchers that have gone ones. in. Yeah. Yep, Generations of researchers have been doing this. And what they found is that our social connectedness, and this is why this year has been so hard for everybody around the world, because we have not been able to be only through this, which is lovely at times, and and that's what we've had to do, but it's actually not the social connection we crave. And that's why Jordan Peterson is is right. Life is a team sport. It's not being... It's not about being a social isolate. We can't be islands and survive and thrive. Now, we could survive, but we most probably won't thrive because if you look at the oxytocin, so you look at us chemically and neurologically, oxytocin is released when we're with people we care about, when we are smiling and looking into people's eyes and really enjoying their company. And that's the bonding. And it's all of these sorts of things. And that's why friendship is really important. And it's not saying that the friends at four are going to be friends for life. They might be, but that kids just need to know how to get along with other people because otherwise life is going to be really difficult. Mm. And that leads to the next point in the book, which is encouraging kindness and empathy. And in that, you have the Brene Brown, Brene Brown quote, which is connection is why we're here. Um, yeah, I really, I really love the fact that you encouraged um, uh, kindness and empathy. Is it just facilitating connection and just exactly what you were just sharing? Then just like, it's so important to have connection for good mental health that like kindness and empathy are like the easiest gateways into that. Absolutely. Because if you look at that and when we are empathic, we actually feel what others are feeling. And when you can look and understand why somebody else might be sad or not feel, and then you want to help or you want to do those sorts of things. And again, it's about what do we model as adults in children's lives? Kindness and empathy. Kindness makes the world go round. (laughs) Having Seriously, it does. Like it doesn't take, it doesn't take a lot of money to be kind. You can smile at somebody in the street. And it was really interesting. I was walking down the street the other day and I just said hello to somebody. And um, it was fascinating because my husband and I were walking together and he said, as we started off up the hill, he said, I don't think he expected you to talk to him. And the guy yelled out just after Andrew had said that, he said, hey, thanks for taking notice Mm. because most other people may have just walked past. And, you know, that didn't cost me anything. And I was, that's just who I am. I like saying hello to people. I like smiling at people and saying, hey, how are you? Have a good day. And it's not being false. That's not, I'm not being false. It's actually my wish for them that they have a good day and that they just have a good life, like as best they can in their lives. Because honestly, kindness doesn't cost you anything. And that's what I try and teach kids is that, you know what, if you can choose to be anything, choose to be kind 
Yeah, this is one exercise that really helped me. <laughs> was uh, and I'm excited to play this with a kid of my own. Touchwood one day. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Touchwood um, was. I remember I like taking on this Buddhist ex- Buddhist exercise. You just walk down the street and you just like you don't say anything to anybody, but you're just walking down the street and you look at someone and you, and you just send them like you send them love, or you basically just say, "I really hope that person has an amazing day." And you literally just walk like literally you could just walk around your block and I live in an urban urban area. So walking around the block, I probably do that to about 10 people. Holy shit, you feel so good. (laughs) And you haven't done anything for yourself. You've just walked out and gone, oh, dude, I really hope that dude has a good day. I hope that chick has a really good day. Oi, brother, I hope you have an amazing day. And you're just zinging on the inside and it's like, holy, I can't wait to instill that in someone (laughs) Absolutely, because it is, and that's what they say, it's a giver's high. Honestly, we talk about a giver's high, that you actually get the kick of endorphins from giving. We're here to make a difference. That's if you ask most people, they want to have, they want to make a difference in some way, shape or form. The majority of people want to make a difference for other people's lives and want to and get that sort of stuff. So, and that is it. You get a high out of being nice to people. The next part is equally as important to me. And this was something that really um, changed my life was gratitude. Um, And I think the key thing that you mentioned in the book in there is gratitude and having a grateful disposition is something that can actually be learned and developed throughout life. Um, Which, yeah, I think is, is obvious for many of us. Um, But I think the key thing about that was taking it home for like a parent sort of conversation, which is actually kids model the gratitude that they see, right? Yeah. And that's, I guess, as I said to you at the beginning, you know, this is like, um, this is like puppy training. It's actually training parents. And it's saying, (laughs) if we model, if we model gratitude or as teachers or educators, as parents, even if we go around the table at night and, and I'm not, I know parents, everybody is so busy. I'm not placing, I'm not placing all these expectations saying you've got to do this. It could be at the table, at dinner table, it could be um, going to bed at night, but it's just saying, you know what, what was good about today? Mm. What were you grateful for? What were three things? Three good things. Sounds like such a fun game. We play it every night. (laughs) Yeah. And you do those sorts of things because it again, and at Christmas, so uh, one of the things and I posted on LinkedIn the other day, um, I was talking about how can we help our children be grateful at Christmas time and because Christmas can be so consumeristic and mm. can be so consumer-driven and materialistic and more, more, more. That's what not, that's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is actually about giving. How can, so even little things, if you bake cookies at home, if you um, go through their toys and look and say, you know what, there are some kids who actually don't have a lot of toys. You don't always play with all of these. Which ones, if we clean them up a bit, which ones would you be willing to give away to a charity this year so that other kids could have something? Mm. Or that food that you buy food for food bank? Because I know, particularly even in Australia, there's a lot of people who are on hard times at the moment. Food bank is going through a really difficult time. It can't keep up. So it's that sort of stuff where you can just, even if on your weekly grocery shop, and that's one of the things I talk about is, hey, take the kids shopping, like teach them chores. Chores are a good thing um, and responsibility. But even if you say, you know what, pick some things to put in the basket this week so that we can give them or make a Christmas hamper. It's that sort of stuff because it doesn't take a lot of money. But what it shows is that, 
as adults, we are thinking about how to be kind. And also, how do you talk, if your children are with you, how do you talk to the barista? How do you talk to the person who opens the door for you? Mm. How do you treat the people who are cleaning the streets? If you're walking past somebody and they're just sweeping up in a, in like in a, a mall, a shopping mall, do you say, hey, thank you? We really appreciate the job you do. Because it's those ripples of kindness that your kids will pick up on. Now, it doesn't have to be forced. If that's not you, that's okay too. But just be very aware that as the adults in their lives, we are modelling the behaviour that they will have for the rest of their lives. Mm. There's a, I'm conscious of the time, but I don't give a shit. <laughs> I don't give a shit. I'm going there. <laughs> um, so hopefully that's okay by you. Um, yeah. One of the things I wanted to, one of the things that came through, um, and I, 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 this has been one of the most profound memories of my life, actually. I went traveling with my dad to India and I remember we had this one interaction and there was this gentleman that he was interacting with. And in India, like, there are certain people in society that are a bit more show pony, yeah. I guess. Um, and this guy was really just like, like lathering it on my dad. Like he was just like, Oh, I've got this and I'm this person, I'm that person. And I remember being a kid and looking around and just going like, this guy's like borderline belittling my dad, basically, you know, because if he's trying to say like, oh, I've got this, I've got that. I'm looking at my dad and I'm like, touch wood at the time, you know, and touching all the wood. I was just like, but you've got more than he has. Why are you letting him talk to you like that? You know, and the whole time my dad was really humble about the whole thing. And he was just like, okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much and have a beautiful day. And then my dad left the interaction at this party and I went back and I remember being kind of furious with my dad. I was like, dad, you let this person talk to you like that. And that was my ego at the time, right? So my dad has been a spiritual teacher for me for a long time. Um, but I remember, and then it was literally like about five years ago that this moment actually decompressed in my brain from like 20 years prior, right? And I realized that in that moment, my dad didn't battle ego with ego. He just said, okay, you're entitled to your ego and kind of just said, all right, yep. have a great day. And then, but that lesson when it dropped in for me was so powerful because I was like, powerful. oh, I've been banging heads with people. And there was that clear moment in time where I saw someone trying to bang heads with my dad and my dad was like, it's okay, you can bang your head all you want, I'm chilled, see you later. <laughs> And that was a profound life lesson. So we do model. And then sometimes you never know when they drop in. I just wanted to kind of, yeah. Yeah. And that, that is such a profound lesson because it is only with hindsight you can now go, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't feeling berated. He wasn't feeling any of that. He was just going, you know what? That's you. That's your business. <laughs> That's all your crap. You go on with that. That's not a problem. And he wasn't even saying crap. He was just saying that's all your stuff. And he was being polite and respectful, but he didn't have to buy into it. Yeah, yeah. And that was, he was hoping that's what you'd learn from it. And he'd be very incredibly proud that now you've not, and I don't mean that in a nasty way. 20, now 20, 20 years it. later. <laughs> took my <laughs> He's a quick boy, that Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> All right, talking about quick boy. I don't want this podcast to end. I'm having a great time. So one of the things that I really want to talk about, and this is probably like my, the, the, the chapter that really came home the hardest, was you've called it chapter eight, learning to fail. This is a chapter in disguise. 
about the growth mindsets. Yep, because unfortunately, sometimes we, and I guess as an educator, I've seen it more and more, and I'm not sure if you would have seen it, it's a meme or a cartoon of a family in the 1950s, the child, teacher's sitting behind the desk, the child got an F on their report card, and um, the teacher is saying to the parents or showing that to the parents, the parents are going off at the child. Mm. Then in the 1990s or 2000s, the child gets an F and the parents are going off at the teacher. <laughs> and trust me, that's what happened. As, as a lot of teacher friends of mine say, this is what's now happening because parents don't want their children to fail. They don't like their children failing. Their children don't want to fail but they also set their kids up not to fail because they will give them excuses. So I often say to parents, look, you have to let children experience failure. Yeah. You actually have to, because if we just go along telling them that, oh, and I, that's, I said that in the book, as an early childhood teacher, I most probably was very guilty of doing this. I'd look at something 25, 30 years ago, I'd look at a child's art and I'd say, oh, that's a beautiful piece of art. You're definitely going to be good at art. No, that's not the thing to say. I know that now uh, with experience because what we say is, wow, tell me about those beautiful colours. Hey, tell me about that part of the painting because we don't automatically assume or you're just going to be good at maths or you're good because this is what feeds a fixed mindset of, oh, I'm mm. good at art, but I'm not good at maths. Oh, I'm good at maths, but I'm not good at English. And what we talk about and it's like, and I've got my earphones here, so I know this is, it looks a bit crazy, but what we talk about is when we um, are talking about a developing and growth mindset, I say to children, you know, I use a ball of wool and I throw one to them and I say, this is how we learn. We develop neural pathways. Mm -hmm. So that's the first pathway when we try something. But then if we do it again, we get a stronger pathway because there's two. Myelination. <laughs> stronger pathway again. And so I do that about 10 times and then you can feel, and I said, that's how we learn. We get better when we make mistakes. And that's part of the reason that I guess I've watched in the education system and we talk about failing. Failing, I don't use the word fail and I haven't. I always use the first attempt in learning. Mm -hmm. That's your first attempt. It doesn't, that's not your last attempt. Hey, I have to have a lot of first attempts at learning when I tried to learn a ride to buy, ride a bike or drive a car. Um, so I talk to kids about that and say, this is just a first attempt in learning. You didn't fail. It's just your first try. We can try often and we can try in different ways because my concern sometimes is that the education system, and I know you would have watched Ken Robinson's, Sir Ken Robinson's TED mm, talk, the education confused. system actually... Mm often beats things out of, and not physically, but takes things out of children because we don't allow them to express or to show what, demonstrate what they know in ways that are relevant to them. So we expect, as they say, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, then it's never going to be able to do it. <laughs> but if you judge a monkey about its ability to climb a tree, then it will do very well. However, if you judge a monkey by how well it can swim and hold its breath, that's so that's the thing is why are we judging children and, and saying they've failed? They've just come up with a different way of doing things. Mm. They may not have the right answer yet, but they're at least trying and they're out there in the arena and we can't rescue them. That's why I've said to parents, no, you know, if they haven't done their homework, that's okay. Send them to school. Oh, but are you going to, well, we will talk about consequences. 
but that means that they learn to do their homework or they learn to do these things. It's about not letting them or giving them an excuse and letting them off the hook. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. Even in coaching, one of the biggest perspective shifts that I'm affording people, again, again no, I'm affording people, but I, I basically I learned it, so I'm just sharing it on. <laughs> I'm affording people. Look at this bloke. Um, one of the biggest things I find myself sharing, again, is that there actually is no failure, exactly what you're saying, which is you're either learning or winning. You're learning or winning. And, like, sometimes you need a lot more learning so you can start winning harder, faster, better, so keep learning. And that just yeah. means you've got to go belly up time and time again. So if there's no failure. It's just learning. No. And uh, I just, I, you know, I, I love the frame that you've provided here and it just really resonates me and gives me a lot of confidence that, um, yeah, this just makes, uh, I think just that conversation around, especially I think I'm almost timid to go there, but, you know, what you mentioned before are just around everybody kind of getting participation certificates. And like you said, like the, the, the parents kind of having to go at the teacher for failing the kid. It's like, yeah. it's okay to sort of, you know, I need to learn. Um, life is not about and this is the problem we are not preparing children for the real world if we continually give them participation certificates or if we continually and i know but pass the parcel we only used to get one prize and pass the parcel when i was growing up not everybody got a prize and yes it was disappointing and we were peeved because we didn't end up with a big prize but that was life and you got on with it and went okay well that's a game yep that's not we didn't win that prize but that's okay Mm. because we might win the next prize in um, musical chairs or pin the tail on the donkey or whatever it is because it's not about and this is the thing life is not going to treat your child like the special thing that you think they are Mm. they are beautiful they are yours but life is not going to hand things to them on a silver platter and life is not going to say that they are so wonderful and so special. It doesn't work that way. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Childhood is when the essential belief that I'm a competent person is embedded. Chapter nine is about working on self-mastery at such a young age. Why not is probably the first question that comes to me. (laughs) And I get that. It's interesting. When you post that, I was going to say, and why not? Because (laughs) seriously, and I was about to go snap. Um, When when do we learn to tie our shoes? Mm. When do we learn to feed ourselves? When do we learn to dress ourselves? If we do not give our children the opportunity to do these things and experience self-mastery, and I've got to admit, when Mitchell, when I was like, I, hadn't, I would be tearing my hair out some days because he would be changing his mind on what he wanted to wear or brushing his teeth took forever. But if I didn't give him those opportunities, he actually wouldn't feel like he could do them himself. Mm. And it is when we are living in such a time poor society, it is difficult to take that time, but it is so critically important for us as their parents or educators to allow them to have that time to either select their clothes, to allow them to wear whatever they like to kindy. I've seen some children show up and the mother will say quietly to me, they picked their own clothes today. Yep, that's fine with me. <laughs> because as a parent, you go, oh, 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 really? You want to wear that? Yep. Okay. Gumboots fairy wings, whatever. Yep. Not a problem. And you just say quietly, and the teacher will generally go, not a worry. That's fine. (laughs) Off you go. Um, Because this is how kids actually believe, you know what? I'm competent. I'm capable. I can do this. Mm. Mm. 
Thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I kind of want to leverage that into kind of going a bit chop suey in the last, just last couple of bits of here. The last part of the book is on mindfulness, but the last, last part of the book actually talks about what the, why even bother with all of this? And it all, it all really comes down to making memories together, which, yeah, it was, I read so much of the book and then I, I really loved what it came home to, which was this part about making memories together. Um, and obviously one of the biggest challenges as you were just sharing is that time. Yeah. However, and I guess for me, 2020, 2020 has given us a lot of things, <laughs> but it's also given us the opportunity to a certain degree. It's been a forced full stop. Mm. And it's been a, a lot of people have said to me, it's been like, we've been running on these rat wheels and this year the rat wheel got suddenly and forcefully stopped in March, uh, in April and at different times in Victoria and all around the world at different times. Yeah. But we got told we will stay inside mm-hmm. and you won't like not going to work, not doing these things. The kids still went to school. And again, it brought with it its challenges. But I guess what I, why I finished with making memories is because Money is something that it will come and go at different times. Yes, it would be lovely to have a lot of money, but money can't buy health. Money can't buy time and money can't buy memories. And that's what, when you, when people are lying on their deathbed, and this is what I learned from kids with Camp Quality who were passing away, as well as a friend of mine, Bronnie Ware, who wrote The Ten Regrets of the Dying, it's about what the memories you have. It's about what you've got in your head and those memories are what you take with you. Nobody wishes they spent more time at the office. Nobody wishes they spent more time doing the, like doing the shopping or cleaning the house. They wish that they spent more time with the people they loved, telling them that how much they were loved, connecting with things that gives their life purpose. And that's what I'm trying to say is, you know, make the time to make memories Mm. Even if it's just small chunks of time, if it may be a ritual, as I said before, you can embed or weave in rituals. It could be rituals at Christmas time. It could be around birthdays. It could be having a super happy fun day every three months. And that super happy fun day is when the whole family gets together and they just, one person decides that's their super happy fun day and they do everything they want on that day. But can you imagine what it would be like? So, and again, you've shared of your own personal experience, Amra, your father and you went to India and that was a memory making time for you. And it's those sorts of things that we take throughout life. Our children will look back and remember those times. That's what they'll hold on to. Hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think the, the last part of the book before the memories part is about mindfulness. And I think, yeah, it's all about but just bringing that mindfulness to your day-to-day life, to the awareness yeah. so you can can have that self-awareness. What are you managing? What are you directing your energies towards? Um, and I think one of the other big things, especially for those that are listening and they're probably reading this book going, oh my God, the benchmark and bar is set so high. And we obviously went through every chapter, um, but it, it is also very forgiving as well. It sort of talks about, you know, you're not going to get this right, but it's okay to sort of just find your way, you know, and this is kind of some really great tools and potentially listen to this podcast you'd feel like you know uh the book is quite dense it's really easy to read um i've probably just picked out the densest bits in the book to sort of uh, unpack and have a chat about and on that carrie i just kind of 
you know, one of my, one of the quotes that I've learned to start to live by is um, if you can't explain it to a 10 year old, you don't know it well enough is this thing that keeps coming back to me. And so I've really been trying to strip things back to first principles. And so you can imagine the pang of jealousy when I read your book. (laughs) 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 When I was like, yeah, that's how you explain it to a five year old. (laughs) <laughs> all the concepts that resonate so deeply with me and i was like yeah i'm talking to someone that yeah i've drank the same kool-aid as so man this book raising a mentally fit generation i cannot advocate harder than i already have um but seriously thank you so much for sending me a copy um and thank you for yeah like doing accumulating such a vast amount of knowledge and work and packing it into such a digestible consumable book like it's so accessible it's so easy to understand and dare I say I think I'm already better for having read it and I'm an adult you know it's it's designed for kids but like you said it's about you know like with the dogs teaching the teaching the owner it's like the teaching the parents it's a really 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 great read and I hope everybody got the essence of that from listening to this podcast as well. And Amrit, thank you, because for me, it's just unpacking it with somebody who understands and who who is a life coach, but it's also, it is so affirming, I guess, because you write it and you wonder, is it going to hit? Is it going to drop? Like, is this going to actually make sense to people? And I think, and you sometimes wonder, it's like putting a baby out there. You go, oh, <laughs> nobody said anything about the baby. Maybe the baby looks like a monkey. Like maybe this is <laughs> it's not such a good book. Um, but when you hear that, and, and again, it's not blowing sunshine up your skirt at all. It's just saying, I appreciate where you're coming from and I appreciate the feedback and the opportunity to get connect with your audience. Of course, an absolute, absolute pleasure. I think this will be the first of many times we get to have these conversations because touch wood in the future, hopefully, um, we can talk about some of my more challenging experiences firsthand <laughs> to unpack on the uh, on the inspired evolution I'll, I'll look forward to our do i look forward to i look forward to our chance then <laughs> oh carrie thank you so much for yeah again just bringing such a deep heavy topic i know what's really driving you is some like you know there is some real heaviness in there but the the lightheartedness and the jovialness with which you bring it and help us realize all the itty bitty shitty committees that are hanging out on our shoulders the joy that we bring um in this space is is really a blessing so thank you so much for sharing yourself with us here today thank you so much for all the work that's gone into the research and the development of this body of work um, and just showing up consistently to do that and as always from us and the audience at the inspired evolution we're just wishing you the best for what's coming up Thank you. You! Thanks for listening in to another amazing episode of the Inspired Evolution. If you're loving these episodes, make your way across to YouTube, click subscribe. Fresh episodes are launched every Monday with highlights being released throughout the week. Thank you so much. And hey guys, just so you know, a lot of love, heart, soul and work goes into these episodes. So if you could, please leave us a five-star review and comment on iTunes. I love reading your positive feedback. It fans the flames of the passion to continue to create and help you live the life that you love. Thank you so much for your wonderful feedback. I can't wait to see you again in the next episode. Big love from Amrit. And remember to stay inspired to evolve. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 